You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It's about bringing different thinking to the table and taking limits off of girls and off of people to really think differently, quite frankly, to be able to protect us from cyber attacks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where what, Joe? Where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. Excellent. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. We've got some fun stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's got a fun story about Girl Scouts who are earning special badges in cybersecurity. And we are back. Joe, I'm going to kick things off this week. My story is about call centers. Mm-hmm. Now, interacting with call centers is, I suppose, one of those necessary evils of modern life. I don't think anybody looks forward to having to call into a call center. I dread every time I have to call my ISPs, customer your support. Your cable company, cable your bank, company. your uh, health care, oh, all that's that the worst. stuff. It, health all, insurance is definitely one of the worst ones to have to call. All that stuff. It turns out that more and more scammers are taking advantage of call centers hmm. as a weak link in the security chain. And there's a group of folks, it's a company called Trust ID, and they work on uh, security of phone systems. Mm -hmm. They did a survey of call center professionals, and they wanted to find out what the current state of call center security is and whether the folks who work at call centers and run them, uh, if they feel that the systems they have in place are sufficient. Now, one of the fun things about reading a report like this is that you get to know some of the lingo that particular groups use. For example... Do you know what KBA stands for? KBA. KBA. I'm no. sure there's someone in our audience who's yelling it at their right. at their device right now. It is knowledge-based authentication. Okay, knowledge-based authentication. Actually, I did know that. Okay, sure you did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I worked in the KBA system very early on at Hopkins. Okay, but- so, so KBA is what 69% of call centers use. To, a, to authenticate inbound to, calls. That's right, to authenticate people. And that's when they ask you about personal information, right? right? You call in and they say, before I can talk to you, tell me some bit of information about yourself. Yes, I get on, that every time I call a credit card company. Right. Now, the disconnect here is that 40% of the survey respondents, these are people who work in the call centers, mm-hmm. they had little to no confidence in KBA's ability to authenticate callers accurately. And that's because of the increased availability of all sorts of personal information online, right. thanks to data breaches. Absolutely. Chances are, if I want to look hard enough, I can probably find most of the things that we tell these folks about ourselves over the phone. I remember one time I was on the phone with somebody and they asked me to validate all the information. And I, I said to him, you know, if I had simply rummaged through my trash <laughs> and found a statement, I could give you everything you just asked me for. Right. This is not a good authentication system. Well, and it turns out that the call centers hate this kind of authentication because it also slows things down and people are expensive. So having these folks at the call center taking the time, they estimate it takes between a minute and a minute and a half on average Mm. to gather up this information from people. And that takes time and that costs money. The customers don't like it either because 
who wants to start a relationship with an interrogation? Right. Right. And it also gives everyone a false sense of security. And that, that's my biggest problem with it. That's what irritates me the most about it is that it is a false sense of security. I appreciate that they're trying to do something to secure my account, but they're really not doing anything to secure my account. Yeah. Now, some systems do kind of a pre-screening before you even get to a call center person. So this is where the, the computer answers and, mm-hmm. say, and says, you know, please enter your phone number or please enter your account number. Right. And so that takes away that labor part of the person having to deal with that. They may ask for your account number or your zip code and things like that. But but that still falls short because, again, much of that information is available online. Sure. I mean, all they're doing is taking the cost off the call center at that point in time. Right. Right. And also those systems are limited by what sorts of information is convenient to put in over a telephone. Correct. So you're pretty much limited to numbers. Yeah. Your last four, your social security number, your zip code, your date of birth. Right. All of those things, uh, probably not much more than a Google search away. Right. (laughs) So now there are biometric systems. There are some systems that use voice print IDs. Mm -hmm. But the problem with those is they tend to have a long enrollment process. You have yes. to go through and you have to read a script. And the other thing is that has to be done ahead of time or else it's it does. it's no good. Yep. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do voice ID in the same call that they're going to use voice ID to authenticate you. That doesn't work. And, of course, there's multi-factor, which we've talked about here plenty of times. So. That would be a good one. I would think this would be a great opportunity to enact like SMS multi-factor, even though we talk about how that being the least secure form of multi-factor authentication. Yeah. It is temporal and it does provide a greater level of security than just asking information that's on my statement, for example. Right. And now the systems that these folks at Trust ID are advocating, and to be perfectly clear here, but part of the reason they're advocating is because it is a type of system that they sell. Hmm, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like kind of like asking a barber if you need a haircut. Right. right? But that doesn't mean it's invalid. They're, they're <laughs> no, no. But uh, just just to make sure we all understand right, that right. Uh, they are they are definitely on one side of this equation. But right. but I thought this was interesting that they have systems that analyze the call itself. So before anybody picks up the call, these systems look at the quality of the call. They can actually analyze some of the acoustics of the call, Mm -hmm. the route that the call takes to the call center, Mm -hmm. and they can run it by all of these analysis algorithms that they use to establish if the call is likely to be fraudulent. Hmm. And if the call doesn't pass a certain number of uh, tests, it'll never even make it to the call center at all. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. The bottom line here from this report is that this is sort of the shape of things to come, that these folks are are they're using a combination of these things. So we can expect using automated things like this that check the call out for authenticity combined with this uh, knowledge-based information, but also multi-factor and maybe even easier types of biometrics. You know, if you have, for example, more and more of our mobile phones have biometric systems for authenticating us. They do. They have fingerprints. Right. Fingerprints, face ID, things Mm -hmm. like that. So if they can integrate into those sorts of things, something that you're already carrying around with you, right? Well, that'll enhance the security. Yeah, this is uh, what they fancily call defense in depth, but I like to call the belt and suspenders approach. <laughs> okay, right. In uh, England, I think they call it belt and braces. Belts and braces, right? Yeah, suspenders kind of hold like, up yeah. socks. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So not a whole lot to be done here, but I just thought it was an interesting look into what the problem is in a certain sector and the types of things that they're using to try to make us a little bit safer. Yeah, yeah. I think this is interesting. I, I would like to see a demo of this product and. The good part about this is that this will happen behind the scenes and will happen very quickly, I think. Right. And it's not an impediment to either me as a customer or the call center operator 
as well. I mean, right. it is an increase in their expenses, but it makes things much more convenient. And if you can weed out these fraudulent causes, they're coming in and they don't even wind up bothering anybody on your end, all the better. Yeah, it's a win for everybody. So what do you have for us this week, Joe? So this week, my story comes from Lawrence Abrams over at Bleeping Computer, mm-hmm. which I love the name of that website. <laughs> okay. But it's it's great. The, there's a spam campaign going around right now that looks like it's coming from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the message reads like this. Please focus on this special announcement. Presently, influenza activity is severely elevated. U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, parenthetically it says CDC, mm-hmm. estimates that during a last four months, the situation has deteriorated essentially near 20,000 diseased people were killed by the flu already, and more than 220,000 were urgently hospitalized. Hmm. To stop spread of the disease and keep people from the flu, U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention developed a directions list. Hmm. You could find doc file with this list attached to the email. Hmm. It is recommended to read it attentively and follow the directions to prevent the disease. With care of your health, CDC communication department. Hmm. And then it has this thing down here. It says, not interested anymore, unsubscribe, which we've already discussed. You should never click the unsubscribe link. Okay. There is an attached Word document, and it's called Flu Pandemic Warning. Right. That states you need to enable editing and enable content in order to properly view it. And if you open the Word document, don't open it. But when you open a Word document, Microsoft Word protects you by not enabling any of the content. Right. All it says the in macros. Big, right. It doesn't enable macros or editing. It just shows you the, the document. And it says in big words, urgent notice. And that's it. It doesn't say anything else. So that's supposed to lead you to believe that you have to enable editing and then enable the content so that the content will display. Right. But guess what happens if you enable editing <laughs> and you enable the content? Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, hmm. What could it be? What could it be? Ransomware, Dave. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> the file contains a malicious macro that downloads and executes the Gand Crab ransomware. Ah. Right? Okay. Yep. A couple things to note here. Yeah. That uh, First off, aside from the terrible English, which I <laughs> had a really hard time stumbling through while reading this. Yes. It is centers for disease control. Like Johns Hopkins. <laughs> I have the feeling that's a correction you make fairly often in I, your career. I do make that correction fairly often. Okay. We actually sell shirts somewhere that say Johns with like seven S's after I, Okay. I, I got to get see. one of those yeah. shirts. All right. Very but good. it's the same thing for Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, not Center. I saw this and I'm like, this is supposed to scare me? 20,000 deaths from the flu? That seems like an average flu season. Okay. Right? And I looked it up and there's an NPR article. Yeah, that's about an average flu season. Hmm. It's not a bad flu season for 20,000 people to die from the flu. That happens just about every year. The worst flu season we had was from 2003 to 2004, where close to 50,000 people died. Huh. And there was one back in the 80s where only like less than 4,000 people died. Wasn't there that one back in like, wasn't the like the 1917? There was a really bad one. Yeah, where there was a really people, bad one back then that yeah, killed a lot of people. A but high I don't think, percentage of people. I don't think but we kept accurate records for the back in then. In the modern era. In the modern era. This is modern era times since yeah. the CDC has started keeping records, I guess. Right. But you can see what they're going for right, here. They're, they're going to scare you. Yep. They're trying to scare you. They're going, 20,000 people have already died. Well, that sounds like a lot of people. And you want to protect your family. You want to protect yourself. You want to protect your family. So they say, hey, here are some instructions. Why don't you go out and look at these instructions and keep you safe? And in the course of doing that, you have just infected your computer with ransomware, and now you 
have to either restore from backup or pay a ransom. I don't even know if Gan Crab works. Does it? I, I have. I'm not familiar with the I stream. Think, I'm, I think Gan Crab is a sort of one of those ransomware as a service types of things. Okay. Where so it's like anybody can buy it and spin it up and use it. I don't recall offhand if you get your files back. I mean, two sides to this, right? First of all, don't ever do anything that enables macros. Word macros. Never do that. Ne- there's no reason to do it at I, all. It amazes me that that's still a functioning feature. Since what percentage of the use of that feature in Word is for good and not evil. Right. Probably extraordinarily low. I don't know. Maybe uh, I'm, maybe on I'm Word all documents, wet on this. I would say yeah. you're probably correct. Maybe on Excel documents <laughs> might be a little bit higher. Yeah. But yeah. Word documents, I have never professionally developed a Word document that had a macro in it for some business purpose. Yeah. And the other thing here is protection against ransomware. Have regular backups. Have regular backups, offline backups. Yep. They're yep. disconnected from your computer. Remember, when it comes to backups, one is none. That's correct. Yeah, so have more than one in more than one place yep. if it's important to you. All right, Joe, that's that's a good story. Uh, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. My favorite part of the show. Our catch of the day this week comes from a listener who got contacted on Facebook Messenger. And he sensed pretty quickly that there was something up and he decided to string this scammer along. So this comes from someone who claims to be named Anne, the scammer that is. Uh, so let's go ahead and read this. I will be Anne, and you can play the part of our loyal listener. Okay. There it goes. Anne says, I was wondering if you've heard anything from the publisher clearinghouse, PCH. No, who is PCH? I was enabled to get some cash from them, but I saw your name among the winner list when they came to deliver my winning money. Did you actually get yours? I don't think so. Maybe Betsy did. Nope. If truly you haven't got yours, I think you need to be contact their claiming agent now to see if you are eligible. Do you need their contact? If you have it. All right. I'm going to send them you email address now, okay? And he sends a thumbs up emoji. And then uh, Ann sends the email address, which is a Gmail account. Right. That's not PCH.com. Whatevs. That's they claiming agent text email text them right now that you are ready to claim your winning money. What info do they need? Mind you, you don't have to pay for it nor pay it back. All I was told to do is to get some amount of, wait for it, gift cards for the approving and installation of informations into their system. That's all. Huh. I think you're having too many conversations at once and getting your scams mixed up. And not long after that, the conversation ended and the account was deleted by Facebook. So ah, Facebook uh, got okay. caught on quickly. I suppose it was probably reported by yeah, a bunch pro- of people and by, off it went. Yeah, many people. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a fun one. Thanks to our listener for sending that in. That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got Carol Terrio. She's back with a story about the Girl Scouts. They're earning special badges in cybersecurity. And we are back, Joe. It's uh, good to welcome back to the show Carol Terrio. She's got a story this week about the Girl Scouts. They've been earning special badges in cybersecurity. I have something a little different for you guys today. So when I heard via the Webosphere that the Girl Scouts of America would be offering cybersecurity badges as part of their science, technology, engineering, and math program, I was thrilled. And I wanted to learn more about it. Violet Apple, CEO of Girl Scouts for Central Maryland, was kind enough to give me an insider's glimpse on how they came to introduce a cyber program into the Girl Scouts, what was involved, and most importantly, how the Scouts are reacting to it. So lots of interesting tidbits. 
Plus, Violet was just lovely to speak with. She's full of warmth, charisma, energy, and vision for the Girl Scouts. She's so good. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Violet Apple, and I'm the CEO for Girl Scouts of Central Maryland. I've spent my entire career with Girl Scouts, starting in Pennsylvania, moved to Boston, and now I'm here in Maryland. When I first got the job, it was kind of almost uh, right out of college. And I got to see these incredible opportunities that girls were having in Girl Scouting. And I had been a Girl Scout, but I had not gone all the way through. I also saw an opportunity to bring the program to an audience that wasn't really getting a lot of Girl Scout program at that time, which was back in the 80s. And that were, you know, girls of color, African-American, Latino girls. We didn't have as many girls in the council. And I was hired specifically to help bring that population into the Girl Scout world. When I saw the opportunities, I, I, I never stepped away from it. And I didn't expect this. I didn't expect to be here this many years later. <laughs> but it's been a rich career, very, very rich in terms of the work that I've been able to do and how rewarding it has been. I bet you've seen a lot of changes in the Girl Scouts, especially with this kind of new chapter on technology. Yeah, it's interesting. I have our focus now is much more, I would say, laser-focused than when I first came into the organization, particularly around technology. But interestingly enough, STEM has, like when we talk about technology, science, technology, engineering, and math, has been a part of the Girl Scout program for a very long time. But I think right now what I'm seeing is really a different level of collaboration with experts in the field. And that's what makes it really exciting. Um, Julia Golden Lowe started the Girl Scouts on March 12th in 1912. When she started the program, she really thought about giving girls these very interesting and different opportunities than what they were used to traditionally. So when you start thinking back to way back then, I would say almost like a year after the Girl Scouts started, maybe around 1913, badges were already introduced around uh, learning about being an electrician and flyer badges and things like that. So when you think about some level of science and that kind of thing, it goes way back. It started back then. And I think badges have always been a way to really introduce girls to a number of different topics. So it makes sense that the natural progression that you guys would be looking to partner with cybersecurity and you know cyber awareness for girls. A lot of the cyber badges came about with, I'm going to give her a lot of credit, our new CEO nationally, Sylvia Acevedo. Sylvia, by profession, is a rocket scientist. So she got her start, her early start in Girl Scouts. That's where her interests around science came. And so she has been so focused on the importance of STEM in a girl's life. And so I want to go back and talk a little bit about why that is. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's really twofold. When we look at the workforce in the future, probably right now, a little over a quarter of the workforce is made up of women in the STEM fields, maybe let's say around 29%. The jobs that are emerging right now, it, we are looking at in some areas, 85% of the jobs will have some kind of a STEM focus. The Girl Scouts has always been a pipeline, you know, for leadership and for the workforce. And so we have to really think about this a little bit differently in terms of how we're preparing girls for the future. This is an economic imperative as I look at it. But Sylvia had great contacts and she really 
worked with a number of companies around the country to really start talking about how we elevate and give girls these really interesting and unique experience using their content and using their expertise to elevate the badges. And so cybersecurity, as we know, is one of the biggest and the fastest emerging fields. And so she worked with uh, companies like Raytheon, when I say she, the national organization, worked with companies like Raytheon to begin to, to develop these badges and programs. And so can you tell us a few of the badges that the girls can focus on and, and what work maybe they have to do to get them, just to give an example of the kind of things they're looking at? So we have like Think Like an Engineer badge. We have badges that are cybersecurity around safe, their uh, safeguard badges. The interesting piece about these badges is they start at the DAISY level, which is kindergarten and first grade, and go all the way through which is our ambassador level, which is uh, 12th grade. The badges focused on like uh, looking at networks or thinking about binary codes and coding. And they're, they're amazing. It's, it's a wide variety of badges. And these are new badges. So this is like from a cybersecurity standpoint, we're just introducing those badges, but we've had other STEM badges as well. Now that Violet had given me this overview of how the whole cybersecurity program worked, I wanted to know how the girls were taking to learning about cybersecurity. The badges have just been introduced this year. And we did a kickoff with, um, I'm going to, you know, we uh, nationally, we have a national partnership with Raytheon. They do amazing work. We did a kickoff and part of that kickoff was they just wanted to test out some of the activities on about 10 girls. So we had about eight, eight or nine girls who went to their innovation center, gave them these activities to do. And one of them was an escape room, which is very popular right now. And I was a little nervous for the girls. The girls rose to the, <laughs> rose to the occasion, but they were using it because we're going to use components of what they did in a national cyber challenge. What was fascinating was to watch seven or eight girls who didn't know each other at all until they walked into that room. None of them knew each other. They were a random pick. They came together and you had to watch the dynamic of how they began to work together. It's about bringing different thinking to the table and taking limits off of girls and off of people to really think differently, quite frankly, to be able to protect us from cyber attacks. These girls were amazing. Uh, they gave them so much time. I think it was initially 45 minutes and uh, an hour, and then they had to limit it to 45 minutes. They did it in less than 30 minutes, working together beautifully. Brilliant. It worked just as it was supposed to. And that really made an impression on me because it said to me, you know, you can bring girls from different backgrounds, different races, just and given a task and given a challenge where they had to write code, there was no one leading them. They gave them a folder and said, go at it, go, go to it. So it was interesting to watch how they took to it. And they did. And so I think that girls are loving this. And we have, we had more girls interested in doing this than what we had spaces available. So I'm looking forward to the challenge next October. The thing also that I love about this program is I spend a lot of my time trying to educate people on how to be secure online. And so not only is this going to benefit the country that these girls are learning these skills uh, eventually, but it also helps protect them now on their phones or on their computers, right? Um, we, we had 
to tell girls they had to put their phones away, which is hard. But the engineers that were there, many of whom were uh, female engineers, talked about working in the company and really helping girls to understand how your digital footprint is left with everything that you post. I think they gave girls a little bit of a different insight than parents or someone who comes and says, well, you shouldn't do that. It's going to come back. And they really kind of helped them to understand the impact of their digital footprint and how it could have an impact on your future. So girls, I say young people, think differently about their personal information and putting it out there online. And so what I like about the cybersecurity badges in, in particular and this area is it it's helping them to understand the vulnerability of your personal information out in the public realm. Absolutely. But it, what I like, too, is it's also giving them the skills so they don't have to approach that world with fear or trepidation. Absolutely. They'll have the skill set to be able to go, oh, this feels a bit dodgy. I don't like this. I'm going to back away now before I put any of my information and, in. And they're pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty fearless, I, I think. And that's what so you're, you're trying to instill a little bit of fear in them. But no, they, they really, <laughs> you know, they, they come at technology so so differently and they yeah. think about it from a very different perspective than I do. I'm old to technology, but they're like connected to their to their phones. But I do think this ability to impact them in this way and for them to just give thought to it will help them along the way, particularly in their futures. Is the Girl Scouts always looking for new girls? If there's a girl out there who's listened to this and thinks, that sounds fun. What steps would they take to get involved? So if a girl is interested in Girl Scouts, I mean, they and they and particularly if they have a phone, they could go to just girlscouts.org or if they're in my council, mine is uh, gscm.org. And it'll t- the first thing you'll see is how to join. So that would be one way. You can pick up the phone the old-fashioned way and actually call the office. And and from there, you know, there's different ways to participate. And I so I encourage girls, if you hear something that you're interested in, you don't always have to be in a troop. Troops are a great way to get a very rich Girl Scout program. But we have girls who come in, they want to go to maybe a science-type camp that's being offered, or they want to participate in the programs. We have a, like a wonderful STEM festival that happens every year. It's incredible. And then we have STEM programs that happen throughout the year. And you can just come in and be a member and participate in those kinds of activities. So all they have to do is go to girlscouts.org, look for a way to join. It will direct them to their local area. Or if you're in my council, go to Girl Scouts of Central Maryland, or that's gscm.org, and they can join from there. You know, I wish there was uh, adults scouts out there. I could use with some of these skills. <laughs> well, you know, I, and I'm glad that you said that because that is a really, uh, it's a great opportunity for our adults to actually learn with our girls. One of the things we do with our STEM festival and with our programming is some of our programming, we invite parents to be part of it because in order for a girl to be supported after she gets excited about science, she needs her parents or her parent to help her along the way. Parents are the biggest influencers of careers in the future for children. And so yeah. I, I think adults getting involved, even if you're a little, you know, like I'm not a science type person, you can help to lead a robotics team and learn with girls. And it's an amazing opportunity, I think, for adults as well. 
Wow, Violet, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. This has been fun. I can talk about this, as you can see, all day. I know we don't have all day, but I can talk about my love for the Girl Scouts and the work that we're doing for girls every day and creating this wonderful environment where they can thrive. I, I could do that all day in, in my sleep. <laughs> Thank you so much. Stay in touch. Now, I just love the sound of all this. Not only do these girls get to meet some pretty talented cyber folks on their journey of filling their badge requirements, but they're learning some key skills on staying safe online. That's a total win-win in my book. Wow, that's uh, some good stuff going on there. That huh? is fantastic. Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Carol, uh, you know, she's Canadian living in the UK. Right. We've got to cut her some slack. I mean, it's not like we ever butcher any words or names or accents on you or I, right? Oh, sure. I do that every <laughs> single time. But I'm also not going to let that stop me from pointing it out when other people do Yeah. Me. Yeah, well, maybe I'm a jerk that someday way, she'll have to visit us here in lovely Maryland. Right. So back to the Girl Scouts. Yes. How cool is it that the head of the Girl Scouts is an actual rocket scientist? Yes. Yeah, I love it. Sylvia Acevedo, she uh, she worked on Voyager 2. Wow. And uh, wrote programs for processing the data it sent back. Yeah. Worked at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Oh, very cool. That is fantastic. Something that Violet Apple said here was very important. 89% of the jobs of the future will involve some kind of STEM component. Mm-hmm. Okay. We are beyond the point where you can say, I'm not good with computers, I'm not good with math, I'm not good with engineering. You're, you're going to have to have that, and our education system is going to have to change to promote that kind of education. Yeah, and these sorts of programs can help folks get a leg up, I suppose. I would right? agree. Yeah. It is great that they're starting with the cybersecurity training in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. In my opinion, you cannot start this kind of training too early. You cannot start this kind of cognizance, this kind of thought process. When I have gone out into high schools and talked to students about careers in cybersecurity, I think that is actually too late. Hmm. Uh, that at that point in time, they're not looking at the careers if, if they're not already prepared for it. I think the, the latest you can talk to a kid about gearing their career towards this is middle school. Hmm. Uh, and that's just my opinion. There's no evidence behind it. I'm just saying that out loud. Usually by the time a kid is in high school, they're already thinking along their career path. Yeah, that's interesting. Like mm-hmm. you couldn't take up baseball as a junior in high school and right. expect to be a pro. Is that kind of, yeah, kind of what you're getting at? That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thanks to Carol Terrio for uh, something a little different, but uh, I'm really glad we got to hear that. Yeah, that was a good interview. Yeah. And that is our podcast. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about them at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Our technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.